Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 537 of the Survival Podcast. It is Monday, October 25th. I told you it was going to end fast. Um, you know, we got trick-or-treating going on here at the end of this week. Uh, little ghost ghouls and goblins will be coming to you and looking to store up candy for, oh, I don't know, the next three or four days. Um, anyway, I always kind of bring things up like that once in a while just to remind you of the whole process of time and to stay prepared. Today is Monday, and that means we got your call, or not your calls, your uh, emails to uh, jack at the survival podcast. Uh, got, Jack at the survival podcast dot com, uh, with, uh, questions and commentary and feedback and things like that. If you're not a huge fan of these shows, stay tuned today, listen to the intro today, extra stuff today that's really important, and I guarantee you, you're going to hear some things in today's show you won't hear anywhere else, uh, specifically the way they'll be talked about, some questions and insights and things you've never heard on the Survival Podcast before, really great stuff, not a lot of tough ones like Friday's Colin Show, man, that was a tough show to do. There's some stumpers there, but this is going to be a great one. Remember, if you'd like to be included in a show like this, uh, put question for Jack in the subject line, regardless of whether it's a statement or an article or whatever. That's just my filtering process to put you into a priority queue. And uh, send that to jack at the com. If it's a question, please include your question in one or two sentences, and then give me all the information you want after that. If you write me a book and put your question at the end, I probably won't get through screening it. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping real quick before we get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, housekeeping item one is always let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is MERS-Radio.com. I talk about them a lot. Let me try to explain this a little differently than I usually do just to keep things interesting so it's not like the same old commercial you get on TV because I hate the commercials that come on over and over and over again. MERS is basically two-way radios. Let's just make it that at first. So, like, walkie-talkies is what they look like. A little bit better quality than all the crap you see on the shelves. A little bit better uh, uh, customization. You can have five frequencies and then five sub-frequencies to each frequency. A lot less use out there of MERS. That means a little bit more of an expectation of privacy while not completely private. Limited range in an urban environment, about a mile, you'll do better than that if you get out into a space where you've got wide open spaces or if you're on a high ground broadcasting to a low ground. Additionally, to your walkie-talkies, you can have a base station. What's a base station? Looks like an old desk phone almost. Sits on a, on a desk or a table anywhere, plugs into the wall, always on. That way, somebody that's out in the field can call back to the house at any time. And anytime you're using a, so in a neighborhood, this could be used for neighborhood watch, what have you. Add to that the ability to put out motion detectors. So I put a little motion detector out, and it's on the same frequency as my radios and my base station. Somebody moves by it, and I hear alert sector one. So I got security, I got communications, and I've got um, a frequency that's not really highly used by anybody else. So check out MERS radios. Next up today, the Berkey guy. Man, I'll tell you what, I'm loving my new Berkey system. Uh, it's better than what I was doing in the past to get fluoride and other chlorine and crap out of my water. It looks great. My brother-in-law, who t thinks I'm nuts for this stuff, by the way, was uh, over the house dropping off my goddaughter slash niece this weekend. She stayed with us for another... She likes to come over and stay once in a while with Uncle Jack and Aunt Dorothy. 
And uh, he looked at it and said, that looks really good. He actually liked it better because it looked good uh, than really understanding the value of you know filtering things out of your water. But fresh, clean water is something you got to have no matter where you go, folks. And I think for your home, Berkey is the way to go. Uh, so check out the Berkey guy at Directive21.com. Next, uh, remember, check out our gear shop. we got a lot of new stuff coming there. I'll leave it at that because I've got more to talk about in a second on that. Consider joining the Members Brigade. Exclusive content. Great deal. Hold on. I'm going to give you a discount code in just a second. And, and remember, we got this new site called SaveOurSkills.com being run by Nick Ledoux. Uh, great site. Focuses on actually how to do stuff and keeping that in America. America's knowledge and skill set uh, fresh and renewed and a source of knowledge for that. So check out SaveOurSkills.com. All right. We are in the main show right now, but before I take your calls or before I take your questions, I, I want to tell you about something that's going on. Uh, a long time ago, almost a year ago now, I had a guy named Rob Gray come on the show. He was from a place called the American Open Currency Standard. And they do silver and copper coins that are usable with any uh, merchant in their network as a barter item. So instead of paying the person you know, $50 or something, you can give them 50 units of AOCS silver, which would be one ounce. And you know, you buy your currency, and at that point the currency goes into circulation, and can't go deep into that today. But Rob approached me about doing a survival podcast coin, and here's the reality with silver. It's so high right now. It's so expensive just for junk silver, just for the bullion to make the coin, that by the time we pay for a die fee, stamp the bullion, pay a minting fee, get it shipped to us, then ship it out to you, we would have to sell silver one-ounce coins at about $30 a coin to break even. To break even. Of course, you can go to Atmex right now and buy a one-ounce silver coin for what? About 27 bucks. So it just it just doesn't work for us right now. So he suggested we do one of their copper twos, which is worth two ACS, AOCS units. And SysWolf uh, has come up with a great design. We're still modifying it. But within about seven weeks, you'll be able to buy AOCS copper coins from us. Uh, to use an AOCS, AOCS barter network, spread the message of the Survival Podcast. And here's the great news. We're thinking about doing another challenge coin. People like them, but relatively expensive to do a bronze enameled coin. We're going to sell these at a one coin a piece price of $1.25. We'll sell a roll of 25 for like $24.99. So is this the best way to lay up a 1,000 pounds of copper in your garage? No. But is this a great way to be able to participate in a secondary economy with barter, spread the message of the survival podcast, and have a cool product? Absolutely. Now, here's the thing. Rob's going all out to help me with this. He really is. And I did a write-up over the weekend, and I put out a sale for MSB because here's what I have to do. I have to pay the die fee. And just to make the die is over 500 bucks, And a setup fee for the initial run. And uh, then I have to recoup the cost of the copper, so it's like I get the copper for free. He's just fronting the initial run, and then we pay him back as we sell it. So I need a few extra bucks to get this project done. So I ran a sale with the code word Facebook over the weekend, and it wasn't really participating in that much because I did it over the weekend like a dumbass. And uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to run it all the way till um, Halloween, and the code word is copper, C-O-P-P-E-R. Use that. You get member support brigade. Uh, for $30 for your first year. Code word copper. Uh, I know it's kind of about the MSB, but it's also about the, the new coins. I did a post over the weekend. I'll link to it in today's show notes. It'll be the next one down on the blog anyway. I did modify it and took out the stuff about Facebook and put the new code word in it, but you can see the coins, what they look like. They're going to be awesome. One quick thing before we go to your first email. The coin comp on the front page 
it's not exactly what the final front is going to look like, and it's like black and copper in the graphic, it's going to be just a copper coin. There's going to be no black on it. That's just the way that the graphic is designed. This graphic has to be sent off to a custom artist that does artwork for dies. That's why this stuff costs money to get out the door rolling. Uh, we're not going to try to make a fortune on this. Even with copper, there's not a ton of profit there, but we can afford to do it, and we think it's really going to be a great way. Big news on the back side of these coins is going to be a little e a little uh, web address that so we won't tell you what it is yet. Little mini site sitting out there with a little 20-page pamphlet on it about how money works, and it will be not only a way to spread the message of preparedness in the Survival Podcast, but about the economy, our money system, uh, how we can never be out of debt as a nation under the current system, and it won't give people. Here's what we need to do to fix it. It will give people all the information and say, now you decide what we need to do to fix it. And you become part of a community that is, is, you know, has a desire to at least have a discussion about fixing our monetary system. So with that, let's go ahead and take that, uh, that first, uh, email. Um, this is just a cool one. Uh, I did a, a video series a while ago called Fishing with Flowers where I went out and I caught fish with flowers to demonstrate that it could be done and then how you could use the pieces of the small fish to go forward and catch larger fish. And it was pretty cool. Uh, this guy named Jeff says, Dear Jack, I have almost zero fishing experience. My wife has a little. And we were camping at a KOA in Missouri this weekend. They had a little catch-and-release pond for kids, so I picked up a cheap Zepco bubble pack outfit with a little tackle box. The sunfish in the pond were so small, they just nibbled at the jig lures we were using. And then I remembered your video about fishing with flowers. I got a purple wildflower and stuck it on a plane hook and cast it out for my little girl. In about 15 seconds, her bobber disappeared, so she started reeling in. A tiny little bluegill was on the hook. What a kick, catching her first fish with a little purple flowers bait. I got the hook out and then let her put him back in the pot. It was a moment to remember. Thanks for the tip. I think we've just added another tool to our prepping skills and another activity we can enjoy as a family. As I write up this email, I'm already planning to make a call and let you know what the Survival Podcast has meant to us. Um, and folks... That is cool. That's awesome. And the call he's talking about, I need you to do it too. 866-65-THINK. Uh, episode 550, we're going to play nothing but the audience saying what community prepping and survival prepping and the survival podcast and our forum and, and the overall, not just TSP, but the overall getting into the mindset of a modern homesteader, modern survivalist has meant to you how it's changed your life for the better. Please do that as well. Uh, Jeff, that's awesome that you took your little girl out there and formed that memory that way. Uh, that's something that won't ever go away. She'll always remember that. I bet you she will tell that story um, if it's in the cards for her to have grandchildren, if you know she's going to have kids, because they make their own decision on that. But if she ever has grandkids, I bet they sit on her knee one day and they hear that story about uh, their great-grandfather long after maybe you've gone on. Uh, so that's really cool. Um, next question comes from a guy named Mike. Mike says, uh, hey, simple, easy one. Hi, Jack. Will self-canned food fit in Shelf Reliance products? And that's the Shelf Reliance stuff that we have on the website. Uh, the cancel, Consolidator, uh, the Harvest. It's basically a, a, a rack where you put the food in the top, it rolls down and comes out the bottom, and that way your food stays organized and always rotated, and it's a great system. And the answer is probably not, but I don't know what you're asking me. And what I mean by probably not is if you mean... Um, will self-canned food fit in Shelf Reliance products as, you know, when you go out and you make, you do canning, you put them in like jars, that's not going to work because the bottom of the jar and the top of the jar are completely differently shaped. And it's also a big heavy piece of glass. And if you put it in there and it rolls around the other side, smacks into another glass, oh, I'm sorry, it's going to break. So it's not made for that. 
If you're talking about what I've been advocating for a while, which is to go out and buy uh, USDA, FDA, food-grade uh, paint cans uh, from a company like the Carry Company. Again, they don't sponsor us. Uh, I've talked to them about doing an MSB. I don't even get a response from them. But when I order from them, they, they do a good job of shipping. So they don't want to work with us directly, but they're the only source I can find. The cans are phenolically lined with gold lining. And that makes them safe to put food in. And if you're taking dehydrated vegetables, for instance, and putting them into a can, absolutely they can go in the shelf for lights because they're just a can. I use pint-sized cans because they allow me to do a lot of storage uh, in our Shelf Reliance products. If you use something like the bigger cans, you're going to have to use the uh, the larger rack systems or the larger uh, components for the rack systems to do that. But jarred food won't go in Shelf Reliance products safely. Uh, next one up comes from Ryan. Ryan says, Last November I was rear-ended in my paid-off 97 Ranger, and it was written off. Right after that I made a bad decision and bought a new car because I was impatient, and they waved a check for a $1,000 and no down payment in my face. Ryan, I'm telling you right now, I'm doing your question because you said, I made a bad decision instead of they suckered me in. So that's you accountable, so I'm going to do your question for you. Unfortunately, now I have $16,500 left on a car that's $17,500, but it's only worth twelve dollars to $13,000. And I have to pay $455 a month for the next six years. Oh, my God, why did you do a six-year loan? Ah! I know I effed up, and he didn't use the F, he used the real word pretty badly. Again, accountability, cool, uh, badly. But what's my best option at this point? I can have several grand saved and my Wagoneer to drive. Should I trade my car in on a heavily discounted 2010 truck and hopefully a lower interest rate or just wait it out until 2017? This is my instinct that you should do. Um, you really should sell this car for twelve to $13,000. That's going to leave you owing about $2,500. Absent the car payment, $400 and something dollars, call it $500. Uh, That's one, two, three, four, five months, and the debt's gone. If you really feel that you screwed up and you should have bought the damn thing, get out from underneath it. Going and getting a discounted 2010 truck, right, and... um, Going into debt in a different way with a lower interest rate for another six years for a different payment on another vehicle, it's that's not going to help you, right? You're still going to be in debt for five or six years. Here's the thing. You've got a car that will work for your driving. If you didn't have a car that would work, I, you know, we'd think about another way to do this, like go find a little beater car that's going to cost you a couple thousand dollars and you know, maybe borrow an extra thousand to cover your spread and, and trade it in. and, and do, But you, that's not where you're at. You have another car to drive. Sell the car. Sell the car, take the loss. Go to the financing company. Tell them what you want to do. Tell them you're good for the money. Uh, ask for permission to do it. If they, uh, if they don't want to do it, find someone that will. Go to your local bank and say, look, I have this car. I really shouldn't have bought it. I'm going to sell it for this much. I'm going to need a personal loan for $2,000. If you've been a good bank customer for a long time and you'll do it on a direct draw out of your uh, your checking or savings account, they'll probably be happy to do that for you. It's low risk. So that's what I would do. I'd sell the car and get rid of it. I know that doesn't seem to make sense. You're be like, I lost all this money. Here's the thing. You're sitting on a depreciating asset. If you sit on a, a vehicle right now that's worth $13,000 for two more years, um, with a six-year payment range, you're going to still owe fifteen grand. 
and maybe four, let's say fourteen grand. Let's be optimistic. For let's say twelve thousand dollars. Okay, well, the twelve thousand dollar car you have now will depreciate away from you another three to four thousand dollars minimum. So now you're going to owe twelve thousand dollars on a car that's worth about seven to eight thousand dollars. You have the same spread, and it's going to be harder to sell the car because it's going to be older. I'd sell the car if you could actually get the. Uh, what, do you, what do you need there on it? Twelve uh, to thirteen is what you're saying. If you get thirteen thousand for this car, and um, that's going to leave you with thirty five hundred dollars owed, I would sell it, drive your wagon here, pay that off in six months, and start stockpiling the hell out of money. And when you need a new vehicle, have enough money to to, to go in with great terms or buy it cash outright. I think what you could do is probably in a very short period of time, if you're worried about your older vehicle, have enough money to buy a second older vehicle, pay cash for it, and then a two is one, one is none, and then just save money like crazy. Um, vehicles are a great way to lose money. I haven't bought a new vehicle since I bought the Jetta. It will probably be the last new vehicle I ever buy. Recently, I needed an F-350. Brand new ones are $60,000. I bought a used one for $19,000 cash. And... Uh, That's the way I'm going to go from now on. I suggest you consider the same. All right. Next one. The ultimate in survival preparedness. This is an article I told you today was going to be a cool day with some stuff you haven't heard before on my show or maybe anywhere else. If you think the idea of venturing off into the wilderness for, let's say, six months would be daunting and um, having to carry everything you need with you or take what you need from the wilderness while you were there and have no support and no help for those six months, Where do you hear this one? Going to Mars on a one-way trip. Let me read this article to you. It is on Cosmic Log on MSNBC. I'm going to read part of it. I'm going to talk about it. And I'll give you a link so you can read the rest of it yourself. Alan Boyle writes, With the first explorers to visit Mars, will the first explorers to visit Mars come back to Earth? Or does it actually make more sense to leave them there? The idea of sending the Red Planet's first settlers on a one-way trip has been kicking around for years, and now two researchers have published a paper in the Journal of Cosmology laying out how such missions could play out in uh, between now and 2035. This is quoting uh, from a, a guy here. It is important to realize that this is uh, not a suicide mission. Washington State University, Dick Schultz, Mazuk and Arizona State University Paul Davies write, The astronauts would go to Mars with the intention of staying for the rest of their lives as trailblazers of a permanent Mars human colony. In a WSU news release, Davies said the concept follows the model set by past human settlements of new lands. It would really be little different from the first white settlers of North America of the North American continent who left Europe with little expectation of return. Back in the mid-1990s, rocket science and Mars Society founder Robert Zerbin pointed out that colonization is by definition a one-way trip. And since the experts have debated the best way to do one way for four years ago, X-Prize founder Peter Damondis suggested setting up a private sector Mars citizenship program with volunteers kicking in from $10 to $1 million each At about 100 candidates would be chosen by lottery to take the trip to the Red Planet colony prepared for them by robots. Um, and you can read the rest of the article yourself. Here's basically the plan. You send rockets with space uh, landing vehicles, which we know how to do, to Mars in mass. Huge amounts of supplies, food, uh, everything else. Some water, but we try to find a, we use robots to try to find a place where there's ice on Mars, 
where there's frozen water that we can get our water supply from Mars directly because you can't ship enough water there to support a colony. So that's got to be found. Once the robots find a place with water and caves, and this sounds ridiculous, but it's not. This it's, it's billions of dollars to do it, right? This little lottery isn't going to get it off the ground, but um, but it could be done. We have all the technology to do everything I'm about to tell you. So robots go out and find a location. The little rovers find a place with a nice cave near uh, frozen ice, subterranean frozen ice, whatever, and they start to build a, a, a settlement, which is basically a shelter. And once we know where that space is, then we just keep sending rocket after rocket of supplies and materials. And the robots get everything, like, almost ready. It's not really a great place to live, but the food's there, the, the water supply's ready to go, a place has been found, and then we send a first group of people up there. They get out the spaceship, and they go into this cave, and they start using all these materials, and in, in the front of the cave, they build some kind of structure to keep the atmosphere out, and they start. They basically build a little space capsule on the planet, a, a habitable environment. And they go from there. The first group of people are people, they say in the article, past childbearing years. Read that as forcefully sterilized or willingly sterilized because they don't want to have any reproduction going on with the first, you know, 12 people there. It's, imagine a baby stranded on Mars, right? The, the way the media would spin that. So we, no reproduction for the first few waves of people. As the colony grows, more people arrive. And we can keep resupplying it until the colony becomes self-sufficient. Eventually there's domes, they're growing plants in a greenhouse-like environment, etc. And Mars turns into a colony. Is this science fiction? On some levels, yes. Is the initial attempt feasible with today's technology? Yes. Here's why I brought it up as a survival topic. One, it should really make you think about what do we really need to survive? Because if you forget what you need to survive in that environment, you're dead. Next, it also brings up an interesting thought. It is a lot like the West or the United States was settled. You know, North America was settled by, by Europeans. People came here. They weren't going home. And it's a lot more better environment than, uh, than the Martian uh, landscape. But um, that's what it was. But here's the one I want you to think about. Doing this would take hundreds of billions of dollars. Hundreds of billions. Now, let's say we fast forward 200 years and this thing worked out. 200 years from now, which is, you know, look at 1600, 1500s, you know, the 1600s, like Columbus coming, doing the scouting trip in 1492, right? And then eventually some people showing up from Spain and from, you know, England and, and all these other places. And by 1776, Americans said, hey, the hell with this. You guys get out. We want to run things our own way. How long would it take after a colony was beginning to grow and thrive and become self-sufficient where the colonists would say, hey, you know, we're Martians. We're not Earthers. We don't want to pay taxes to you people or whatever hook we had into them. Because you know there'd be a hook. And how do you respond to the fact that, well, you know what, without the investment that we made of hundreds and billions, maybe trillions of dollars at that point, you wouldn't exist. Interesting, isn't it? Looking at two sides of a revolutionary's, uh, uh, you know, viewpoint. So just think that one, kick that around, read this article. It's kind of cool. Not directly a survival topic, but boy, does it spur off a lot of survival concepts. Might be a good one to drop into the forum and have a discussion about what it would be like and see what we can learn about survivalism from it. Okay, next one comes to me from Mike. Mike says, hey, we see fuel scarcity rationing in the future due to peak oil or otherwise. It's likely the few will be prioritized for military government services like police, fire, etc., and food delivery. 
Most of these vehicles run on diesel. Do you worry in the scenario that it will be hard for the average Joe to get a diesel? I'm looking at buying a hybrid, a used hybrid vehicle. I'm a little worried about the battery. I don't want to buy a car and then have to replace an expensive battery a month later. Do you have any advice for that, the situation? Most of the cars I am looking around at are around a hundred thousand mile mark. Um, here's what I would say. It is more cost effective right now in our current situation to buy a diesel vehicle than it is a hybrid vehicle. That may or may not change in the future. I have some interesting things about rare earth metals that are used to build, you know, electric systems and battery systems for cars um, toward the end of the show. So I'll hold off on that for now. But do I worry that, you know, if I we get into a really short fuel ration situation, diesel will be hard to come by? No, because they have a diesel vehicle and a gas vehicle. So if you have two vehicles, I would. Or th we have three. We actually have two diesels and one gas. I would never go all diesel because of that concern. But if we're getting to a point where you can't get diesel, you probably aren't going to be able to get gas either anyway. The beauty of a diesel is I could, don't want to, but I could dump a gallon of corn oil in there, and as long as it ain't cold out and gel the fuel up, it'll run. I can make biodiesel. Um, if we have to start relying on biological production for petroleum on any level... Diesel fuel is a hell of a lot more stable and easy to make than trying to make ethanol and burn it like gasoline. So I think diesel's long longevity um, is there. I also think that the um, the value of a diesel is a better investment. I can take a diesel car, and if I take do oil changes and all the basic maintenance on it, I can drive that car for two hundred thousand miles. And it will still sell for a premium over a gas version of that same car with half the mileage on it. If I drive a hybrid 250,000 miles, the battery's, you know, maybe half or less of what it used to be. So, I think the diesel's a better investment. I'd like to see hybrid technology and electric technology come a long way, and I think it will. There are some concerns about the stuff we actually build it with and supply and demand and shortages and things. I think some are being overblown right now because people want you to put money into their fund or whatever, but uh, there is some concern there. I'll save that for a bit, but no, I don't really worry that much, but um, two is one, one is none. No family should be on one vehicle today for any longer than they have to be. If it's part of debt elimination and you're going to give each other a ride to work or whatever, fine, but once you stabilize and you can afford two vehicles, Uh, even if one is just a piece of crap that you don't use, there should be two vehicles. Uh, and I think it makes sense if you, if it's in the cards for you, one of each. The beauty of that, I know you have to store two different things. But if we go to a shortage of one or the other, we have a fallback. Just my thoughts. Let's go ahead and take another one. But trying to go long, not to go long on answers, um, to these shows recently to get more questions in per week and make it more interesting and bounce around more. <clears throat> This one will take a bit, but it's important. I want you to listen to this one because this is why I say stay away from debt, and this is why we have to teach our kids about this stuff. Um, and this could be worse. This could be a lot worse. Uh, I've been <clears throat> a listen. This comes from uh, Brandon Branson. I've been a listen for over a year, and I come and greatly appreciate your opinion. I know your backlog, but here's the question. Uh, I'm just out of school, starting a career, and I have a boatload of student loans as well as some assets. In your opinion, should I try to purchase land? and a home now, or wait a few years until I can work down the student loans. My concern is that if I wait, land prices will go up, and it might just be too late. I worry that I'll miss the window before the next economic crash. But if I purchase land now, my combined load of student loans and mortgage will be massive. 
I can handle the monthly payments of both the loans and the mortgage, but at best, if I live meagerly, I will be 10 years before I can pay off both a student loan and a mortgage. More information. My student loan debt is $175,000 from eight years of school and much irresponsibility. Hence, your question is being answered because you didn't blame somebody else. I have $75,000 in a savings account. Good. Beautiful. My income is $90K a year at my new job and 15 to 20k a year from self-employment. I see no indications that either income will go away soon, but of course the risk is always there. Another listener will tell you how real that is. I currently live in a small apartment, 550 in monthly rent, so my prepping capabilities are limited. Preps include 30 days worth of food and basic what you could do. Recently I decided against purchasing a 1400 square foot home on 10 acres of forested land for 130k with a 20% down payment. I talked myself out of it when I realized that it would put me close to $300,000 in debt with only a moderate amount of savings. I'm currently 33 and single and have no kids. Um, this is one on some level you're going to have to make for yourself. I, this is not a cut and dry, just pay the debt. My gut is, if you are making about $90K plus $15, call that $105,000, $120,000 in income, a lot of people are going to look like, well, that's a lot of money. And you're lucky that you're right out of school and you have that income. Uh, very lucky. Plenty of people walking around with expensive degrees that don't have anything. Um, so be glad that you have the income. But that means that you're going to take home about $70,000 after the government gets done working you over, maybe sixty-five. So now I've got sixty-five to $70,000 in real money to play with. If I go out and buy a house for about a hundred to one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, I'm going to create a tax deduction uh, with that mortgage of about six hundred to seven hundred dollars a month. That's going to be six times twelve, seventy-two hundred dollars. Yeah, probably a little bit more in the first couple years. Probably eight thousand dollars. I won't pay taxes on. That's going to save me a whopping $2,000 off my taxes. So the tax savings is minimal, but it is there and we can look at it. I'm also going to be acquiring equity. Uh, property is very inexpensive right now. And I'm going to pay $550 in a, in a rent regardless. But when you buy a house, your electric bill is going to go up and all your other expenses to maintain a house are going to go up. So how do we balance this out here? I say one, take your $75,000 and make sure it's as secure as possible. Make sure that money is safe. That's your fallback. That's the whole world blew up on me, not the whole world blew up for everybody else, and I'm still going to be okay fund. Put that money into a, a lockbox, like Al Gore would say. Start building another fund like that. Start building a brand new, open a brand new account somewhere. Just start throwing money in the account and make extra payments on your student loan at the same time. You gotta get the student loan down. You have to do it. It just, it hurts me for you that it's so high. $175,000, even with a $90,000 salary. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. There's the answer to your question. I don't know. Because you've made such a mess. Dave Ramsey would tell you, rice and beans, beans and rice, find an apartment that you can rent for $100 less if you have to, live in your freaking car, three, five years you could pay this $175,000 off. He'd probably tell you to take three months of your salary, put that aside, take the rest of that seventy-five dollars throw it right on the student loan, 
Um, I'm not going to do that. Times are too uncertain. You got that cash. They, they can't come after your cash. And you can always liquidate the cash and convert it to something else if you know you lose a job and you still owe all this money. I'm not feeling good about you buying a house right now, man. That's, that's what I can tell you. It, it's probably a few years of time working that student loan down. But, I mean, my problem for that is, let's say we take your $70,000 in take-home pay. And for three years, you live on half your income. And you pay nothing but your student loan debt. There's thirty-five grand a year. That's $105,000 paid off. $105,000 paid off of your student loans still leaves you with $95,000. No, what would it leave you with? $70,000 in debt. That's probably your plan then. And at that point, maybe you can refinance the student loan debt uh, for a better interest rate. Maybe. I don't know. I, I, I don't know, man. You're going to have to decide what risk you're going to take here. I'm sorry if I'm waffling on this, but this is the reason I brought this on. I wanted people to understand how bad it can really be. And you are so lucky that you have the income that you do. But um, I don't know. I, I, I would take a real hard look right now. If you're worried about preps, into using some money to put yourself maybe another 30 to 60 days worth of preps up somewhere, even if it's renting a small place. One thing you could look at is buying a very inexpensive piece of land, cash, 10 to 15 grand, putting a little, um, you know, little shack type arrangement on it, at least half, and seeing that as an investment. Um, that's pro as a bug out location a couple hours out, place you can go fishing and hunting or something like that. That's about the only extra money you have. You can't afford to buy a house in this current situation. And anything you can't afford, you probably don't want. Now, if you told me I can go get a house, and instead of paying $550 in rent, I can pay $650 to $750 in a mortgage, I'd say go do it. Because it's such a small amount of money versus what you have to pay off in the spread, and you still have some underlying equity, and you're more secure, then that would be fine. But if you're going to buy a house, that's your price range. Your price range is going to result in a payment, taxes, insurance, everything, of around $700 to $750. With a big down payment, you can buy a decent house for that right now. But anything beyond a couple hundred dollars more a month, you can't afford it because you have too big of a mess to clean up. And I wish it wasn't the case, Brandon. I'm sorry, but at least you take responsibility for it. Um, next question. How do the, Here's one you've heard before, but I'm going to try to make it interesting. How, Jack, how do the 308 and 3006 compare? They are very similar, but is one better than the other when it's talking about an all-around hunting platform or maybe a different caliber altogether? I currently do not have a bolt-action hunting rifle and would like to trade a seldom-used handgun for one. I'm looking for a bolt-action hunting rifle that I can use up here in New England for whitetail, black bear, maybe even moose. I want a caliber that's easy to find. I do not have the funds to buy reloading equipment for, or rifles in multiple calibers. 308 and 306 seem to fit the bill pretty well. What do you think? I think they're both great. I think that you have to draw a tag for moose in Maine. So the moose is an off chance, and the 308 with a good, heavy, loaded 180 grain will do a job on a moose just fine. But I give the edge to the 306 if moose come into the picture because the 220 grainers that you can put in a 306 that don't, there's no, and you don't have reloading equipment, so you can't even buy. You could load a 200 plus grain round in a 308. It comes down the neck too far, takes up powder capacity, reduces the velocity. But since you can't, you don't want to buy reloading equipment, that's not even an option. So that would give the 3006 the edge. Um, 
I would also give you another completely different option up there. Maine, you are never going to be, you know, sitting in the middle of a field like we do here in South Texas taking 350 yard shots. Uh, when I hunted the northeastern woods, the longest shot I ever took on a deer was 75 yards, and that was late in the season when every single leaf was off the tree. Uh, most of the deer that I shot up there were in the neighborhood of 20 to 50 yards. And I know that the terrain in Maine is a lot like the terrain in Pennsylvania. So while you're looking for a rifle, don't be afraid to look for something like a lever-action Marlin in 4570. It'll blow a huge hole in any one of those animals that you want to shoot. You're not looking for something to load down and try to go out and shoot small gamer varmints with. You're looking for an all-around big game rifle. Um, 3006 is a better one. So is the 308 than the 4570 if you're going to hunt outside of Maine. If you're going to get anywhere where you're going to get an open shot, so you're going to be shooting 200 plus yards, definitely. If you're going to, if you live in Maine, you're going to stay in Maine. You're looking for a Maine gun. It would be hard to beat a 4570 or a 450 Marlin. Either one, you'll pay less for factory loaded ammunition with the 4570, though. I would also say you say you can't afford to buy reloading equipment, but you may look at uh, the Lee loader, which will sell for under $20 where you load with a little mallet and a block of wood and you know a little dipper and all, uh, and that would save you money. Loading one box of ammunition or two boxes of ammunition will pay for the cost of the equipment because it's only $20. Bucks. And it's everything you need other than primers, brass, uh, bullets, and uh, powder to reload. And the .45-70 is a great cartridge to reload with that tool. Absolutely perfect cartridge to reload with that tool. So... Um, just the thought uh, that that would be another option. Edge to the 06. In reality, from 180 grain bullets down, the, any difference in velocity and energy is bullshit between the two. They are so close that um, it's, it's meaningless. It, the gun is not the weak point. The shooter would be the weak point at that, at that level of consistency and uh, similarity. I would also tell you the only reason I gravitate to the 3006 personally is because it was part of military history from 1903, really, in its original form, all the way up through the Vietnam War, even when the 308 had taken over, it was still around. And it's still in a few applications today. And it's what, you know, our, our forefathers stormed the beaches of Normandy and went in the trenches of France with. So it has an affinity that way to me. Um, and, you know, ammunition availability... Again, it's not much different there, so um, it's an old debate. Don't have it with yourself. I would tell you, you're looking for a trade. If you find a good trade in either caliber, don't you know that you'd be happy with? Then that will make your decision for you. But if you do come across a good lever gun in 4570 or 450 Marlin or 444 Marlin, those would all be great guns for your application as well. All right, uh, next one is uh, from Jake. Two compost questions. First, I stopped recycling my paper and cardboard some time ago and started soaking the good paper, non-waxy or plastic-coated, in a plastic garbage bin for a day and then tearing the soaked paper by hand and mixing it with the compost greens. Is there an easier way to do this that I'm not seeing? I like the idea of nor normally considered waste product creating compost for my garden, but hand-tearing is a pretty labor-intensive 
Uh, an industrial paper shredder would, would, would a chipper shredder work? Second question is regarding a 100 year old crushed oyster shell story you're told. I've been using some anvil shears to crush beef, pork, and chicken bones into my compost. Is there a problem with doing this that you can think of? Thanks, Jake. Um, let's start with the bones because they're easy. Odds are these are bones that have been cooked with. So any danger of any kind of a pathogen from uh, a neurological level like chronic wasting disease or mad cow disease or anything like that uh, is probably minimized. Um, I can't see the problem with it. Uh, our, our, our meat supply is pretty dadgone safe. Some people would worry about it. Um, if you were that worried about it, I'd say crack the bones open, uh, let the marrow dry out, and remove it, and then crack up the bones. But I, I don't, I wouldn't worry about that. I don't know that you're going to get as much bioavailable calcium, uh, in a long term duration as you would from something like oyster shells, uh, or any kind of seashells, but it, it's, there's probably no reason not to do that. Um, let's talk about the paper. Well, first of all, I don't think you have any need to soak the paper in water first. Shred the paper by whatever means, throw it in there dry, mix it into your compost, and wet down the compost pile. That's it. There's no reason to pre-soak paper for composting. I never have. Um, if you need an industrial paper shredder, you must be doing a lot of, you must have a lot of paper. I mean, if you have tons of paper, I guess so, but, We have one of those little paper paper shredders like for shredding your bills and stuff like that. And we just throw everything in there and then throw it right in the compost pile. And it, it breaks down as fast as anything else that goes in there. Um, would a chipper shredder like for leaves and, and branches work? Absolutely. I mean, if you have one anyway, if you have other use, I wouldn't buy one just for that. But uh, I would definitely throw that in the uh, the leaf side, you know. Uh, but that would work. Uh, I, I don't know, man. I mean... To, to be labor-intensive with this, how much paper are you hand-shredding? Uh, but definitely there's no reason to hand-soak or soak this stuff in advance. Um, not necessary. Uh, I'd, I'd skip over that step, if nothing else. Last, realize that just about any shells um, have calcium in them, uh, oceans, you know, seashells of any kind. If you ever have a friend that's going to a beach where they have a lot of shells, and I mean... Like, not just the shells you pick up and make crafts out of or the ones you put aside because they're pretty or whatever. Just where the shells laying everywhere and a lot of it's just crap. Have them pick up a couple uh, bagfuls of shells for you and bring it back. Uh, if you get to the beach, do that. Great thing to add to your garden. And um, here's the thing. The guy that I told you the story about wasn't crushing anything. All he was doing is taking great big whole oyster shells right from the coast where there's tons of them up in, the New, in New England and just throwing them out in the field and plowing them into the field. And that's why the ag agent was like, dude, you're crazy. It's going to take a hundred years for those to break down. Like I said, his response was great. I have a hundred years of calcium being added to my soil. So just something to think about. Let's go ahead and take another one. I said you'd hear some stuff you haven't heard before today. So um, here's an email from a guy named Donald. And this is pretty daggone cool. I'll just read the whole thing to you. Hey, Jack, I just pulled Walden down off the shelf last weekend and was going through the first chapter. Some of these hit home with some of the stuff you've been saying. And considering he wrote this in 1854, it's amazing how much of it is still relevant today. And this is, of course, Walden by Henry David Thoreau. Uh, your thoughts on how these pertain to the world today. I've put each what each means to me in parentheses. Uh, first one, public opinion is a weak tyrant compared with our own private opinion. What a man thinks of himself, that is which that it is which determines or rather indicates his fate. And what Don says that means is don't worry about what other people think of you, control your own destiny. It means the same thing to me. What people think of you doesn't mean a damn thing. If I worried about what people thought of me, there wouldn't be a survival podcast, folks. I can tell you that. There's plenty of people that have a pretty low opinion of me because I do this show. 
Believe it or not. I get my share of hate mail every day. Water off a duck's back, man. If you're going to make a difference in the world, here's what it really means to me. If you're going to make a difference in the world, some people aren't going to like you. But it's important that we make a difference in the world. All right. Um, the next one is, this spending of the best part of one's life earning money in order to enjoy a questionable liberty during the least valuable part of it reminds me of the Englishman who went to India to make a fortune first in order that he might return to England and live life as a poet. Uh, and what Don says is, speaks like speak speaks the prepper speaks to the prepper in all of us right from your log line living a better life when times get tough or even if they don't this is exactly what i say when i talk about prepping as a retirement plan and gaining independence and scaling back your work eventually saying i don't have to work as hard because my life is self if you're 40% self sufficient you should be able to do 40% less work um and it's it's I, i've never read walden i've never read thoreau honestly and Um, it's exactly what I've been trying to say. People want to work really hard their whole lives, spend the best years of their lives, the time their kids are growing up, the time that their their partner and, and they are the most happy and, and, and the most vibrant and able to do the most things, and they slave away, and they slave away, so that they can move out into a rural you know, homestead when they're 65 And have a little farm when there's people that are there that are dirt poor doing that right now. It doesn't mean it's they just take the shortcut and go directly there. But let's take the shortcut that doesn't involve 50 years of our life spent building somebody else's wealth. Let's let's work on building our own wealth. And that's really not about money. Those of you who listen to the show, when I say wealth, you know that I believe that money is only one small part of our wealth. It's a means to real wealth. Land ownership and productivity and above all happiness. Um, next one, most of the luxuries and many of the so-called comforts of life are not only, are not only indispensable, but positive, are not only not indispensable, but positive hindrances to the elevation of mankind. Uh, and what Donald says is what we've defined as comforts of life are oftentimes luxuries you don't need. Giant flat screen TVs, game consoles, and overpriced sound systems Uh, to patch them all through are the first things that pop into my head on this. I just got to get to level 94 and super shoot them up five or life will suck. Then I've got to watch my game in HD so it feels like I'm really there. These are by no means indispensable. They're nice to have if you can afford one, but you are not a lesser human being if you don't have a bunch of high-priced, high-tech things. They don't make your life better, They may, and they don't make you a better person. I agree, and I actually think what Thoreau was saying there, and what I've tried to say with this is, those things are fine as excesses. As, as additions, but if you by any means define your success with them, not only do they not make you a better person, they will make you a worse person. They will make you less happy. They will make you more miserable. In fact, the reason you're doing it is because you're miserable in your first place. Um, this is like a minimum security prison where I put you in a cell and you have a lot of freedom. You can go out in the yard and stuff, but you know, you're not going to run away from jail because it's minimum security and you don't want to go uh, down with the uh, with the rapist prison uh, down the road and you're only going to be there for a couple years. So you, because you have a lot of freedoms, you start decorating your cell. You have books and stuff like that. Well, you're still in prison and you still don't want to be there. And you're still miserable. That's why it's prison. And that's what we end up doing. We create prisons for ourselves economically and socially. 
We have to be with certain people. We have to kiss certain people's asses. We have to go to a job every day at a certain time and come home at a certain time. We buy a house we can't afford, so now the Morgan imprisons us more. We create our own slavery, and that creates misery. And then we try to fill the misery by spending more money that we don't have to buy more crap that we don't need, and we become more miserable, and we have a divorce rate over 50% in this country. And there it all is. It's not just that you're not lesser. You actually can become a less lesser human being. And I don't mean your intrinsic worth, but your happiness and your contentment. Um, the next one. While civilization has been improving our houses, it has not equally improved the men who are, in, who are to inhabit them. It has created palaces, but it was not so easy to create noblemen and kings. Uh, Don says, focus more on improving yourself rather than material things around you. Um, I would tell you this is so spot on today versus when Thoreau wrote this. Um, he could see it, I guess, but today, the poorest among us live better than a lot of nobles did 250 years ago. Your comfort in a housing project exceeds that of the comfort of a palace of the 1600s. Your medical care, your food, everything is better. But what does it matter if we create a place where everybody can live like a king if we're going to have nobody that wants the responsibility for at least ruling over their own lives? That's what that one means to me. Um, last one. Be sure that you give the poor the aid they most need. Though it be your example which leaves them far behind, if you give money... Spend yourself with it, and do not merely abandon it to them. We make a curious mistake sometimes. Often the poor man is not so cold and hungry as he is dirty, ragged, and gross. It is partially his taste and not merely his misfortune. If you give him money, he will perhaps buy more rags with it. Don says, I read this as, Give a man a fish, he eats for a day. Teach him to fish, he eats for the lifetime. Teach him how to make a fishing pole, and he's got his own business. Pretty sure I got that last part from you on one of your older shows. You did. That's a Jack Speaker original. Maybe I should add that to the Snark t-shirts. Give a man a fish, he eats for a day. Teach him to fish, he eats for a lifetime. Teach him how to make a fishing pole, and you create an entrepreneur. And I think that is what we need to be doing better in our society today. Our society has gotten really good at educating children how to go out and work for somebody else, how to fit in. You think about a, a typical office job. I have to show up on time. I get a lunch break. I get a couple breaks during the day. I have my projects to work on. I sit in my chair. I don't talk to my fellow employees unless I'm conducting business. Right? I'm not saying this is even wrong. Hell, I ran an office. I understand that I need a certain level of productivity to pay you a salary. But that's what that's what going to work at an office is like. What's going to first grade like? I have to show up on time. I get a couple resources, recesses during the day plus lunch, right? I have my little projects to work on. I have a boss, that is my teacher, that gives me my projects to work on. I'm not supposed to talk to others unless I'm on break or we're conducting a project for our school business. Do you see it? Is it not obvious to you what our educational system is designed to do? It's designed to create all the people that want to work in that environment. And if that's you, there's nothing wrong with you, that's fine. But what about the people that actually want to change things, that actually want to make something new, that actually want to create? I don't mean just in the standpoint of the guy that basically has a job like that, that's an engineer that comes up with a patent that creates something that's fine. What about the person who wants to create something completely new from scratch? That wants to go out and 
be in anything from an artist to a farmer to a poet. We don't teach our children how to fend for themselves. We teach them how to fit into a system that's already set up to fend for itself. That's what I get out of the last one. Uh, great stuff, Don, man. I'm going to get that book and read it. I've never read Walden. It sounds like I really need to. And Thoreau seems like a really great guy. A lot of this stuff, I think that people think, well, you must have read this and read that. Um, I haven't, you know, I haven't even read Atlas Shrugged yet. I know people are going, <gasps> no way. I haven't. I just haven't got around to it. Um, I've been more concerned with reading every single piece of information I can get on what the hell's going on out there so that I can relay it to you and make sure that you're not caught unaware. So I haven't had time to read a great big novel like that. Maybe I should get the audio version and listen to it at night. Uh, that's probably a good thing for me to do, because apparently I keep quoting things that sound like they come right out of it. Uh, let's go ahead and take a, uh, another uh, one of your questions. So this next email comes from Chris. Chris says, uh, have you heard of the rare earth element bubble? See article link, and this is on Natural News. This is a guy I really like uh, on, a, on a wide scale. Um, that, that, that wrote this article uh, actually like this guy an awful lot and his name is Mike Adams I've read some of his other stuff here but I think he's a little overreaching here but I think it's because of the information that's being spread around right now um, Natural News it's the bubble you've never heard of the rare earth bubble and due to pop in 2012 potentially devastating industries in western nations that depend on these rare earth elements What are industries, what industries are those? The automotive industry uses tens of thousands of tons of rare earth elements each year, and advanced military technologies depend on these elements too. Lots of green technologies depend on them, including wind turbines, low, uh, low energy light bulbs, hybrid car batteries. In fact, much of Western civilization depends on rare earth elements as terbium, lanthanium, and neodymium. So what's the problem? with these rare elements. 97% of the world's supply comes from mines in China, and China is prepared to simply stop exporting these strategic elements to the rest of the world by 2012. Okay, let me stop right there, and let me read where this is coming from. Here's another article. Wrap up to China moves to spook rare earth consumers. China denies that it plans to cut export quotas. Japan says it wants to develop rare earths with Vietnam. South Korea seeks cooperation with the U.S. and Japan. The World Trade Organization puts off ruling on a complaint against China. I had U.S. congressman raising concerns, paragraph 4 and 5. Beijing, uh, October 22nd, Japan and South Korea moved on Friday to reduce their dependence on China's rare earth metals amid fears export reductions by Beijing could trigger for a broader trade conflict as nations joust over currencies. Reports this week that China halted shipments of rare earths to Japan during the sea territory dispute raised fears that China could use its global dominance of suppliers as political level. Lever. China denied reports it planned to slash export quotas of rare earths, which are used in automobiles, computers, cell phones, and other products. But with more than 90% of the global production of rare earths coming from China, the report triggered this, this report triggers alarm. Uh, in Washington, Democratic Representative Ed Markey, who heads up the House Representative Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming, wrote a letter urging the Defense Secretary Robert Gates and Energy Secretary Stephen Chu, Commerce Secretary Gary Locke, and U.S. Trade Representative Ronald Kirk to invest. Ronald Kirk, I can't believe this guy's part of this organization. Do you know who Ronald Kirk is? Look him up if you don't know. He was mayor of Dallas. The guy is a sleazeball. This is everything you need to know about this current administration. Um, 
to investigate the report that Chinese export cuts. I'm troubled by this recent turn of events and concerned that the world's reliance on Chinese rare earth materials in combination with China, China's apparent willingness to use this reliance for leverage in wider international affairs. Here's the thing. There's a lot more to this article. Both articles, you can read them both. Here's how I feel about this. China does produce more rare earths than anybody else right now. And here's why. They have a big reserve. They have cheap labor. And they don't give a damn what they do to their, to their, to their, uh, to their land. They're, they are mining rare earth the way that the United States mined coal in the 1950s. With basically stripping the land bare. You, you cannot imagine what the mining of some of these elements actually does to an area if it's not done properly. And even then there's, there's d dangers and damages. Simple things like zinc. Zinc's not even a rare earth. But I can show you places north of where I used to live in Pennsylvania where the mountainside looks like it burned. Why? Strip mining of zinc. That's all it was. And every time something starts to grow on there, basically it's chemically burned from the ground up. It looks like the mountain was on fire yesterday. It hasn't been touched for decades. And some of these rare earths have greater... Um, ecological effects. And China right now wants money. So they're pulling out of the ground by any way they can get it and they're selling it in the open market. They're not going to cut their exports on this stuff anytime soon. Not until they, they, they are, they, this is, this is a money machine for China. And they're saber rattling and it's going to backfire on them because I don't think people realize how much rare earth is out there that just we need new ways to get it out of the ground. There are huge lithium reserves in Utah and Nevada. There's several mining concerns looking at different ways to get that stuff in a very low energy impact method. And lithium's the one we need more than anything else right now. Uh, there's big reserves in China. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, there's big reserves in Australia. There's big reserves of quite a bit of rare earth in Iceland, and that's about to be opened up. So if the Chinese saber rattle too hard, it's going to do, you know, here's what you got going on. Japan is working with Vietnam. South Korea starts working with the U.S. and Korea. Right? I mean, or South Korea starts working with the U.S. and Japan. Um, everybody just starts to work with everybody else. China is more likely to keep doing this until they drive the market as low as possible and then tighten things up when people have abandoned all their other operations. In the midst of this boom, it's like saying you have a gold mine, and gold prices are at an all-time high, and you're going to stop pulling the gold out of the ground and selling it. Now, here's the other side of that, though. China can use so much of this stuff for themselves. What they were likely to do is uh, use as much as they can internally and only export the surplus at a premium. That's, that's likely to happen. It's for their own economy with advances in this technology by basically stealing the how-to part from everybody else. Uh, but am I going to get all bent in a knot over this? No. I don't think you should either, but it is something to watch. I do think it's a very interesting sector to maybe put some risk capital into for investment right now. Um, there are, you know, there's a lithium ETF, for instance. Uh, the ticker symbol is LIT. It might have been just pushed up a little bit on some news like this. You might want to wait on it uh, to come down, but that's an interesting ETF, exchange-traded fund. Just like a gold ETF, 
a lithium uh, exchange traded fund that you might want to look at. There's a lot of stuff there. Um, next question, gardening with volunteers. Jack, I've had a garden in my backyard for six seasons, and each year I notice more and more volunteers' seedlings which are planted by falling on the ground from previous seasons. For instance, early in the spring I noticed pepper plants growing from seeds which fell on the ground last year. Is there any merit to planting this year's harvest of seeds now instead of trying to save them for next spring? Keep up the good work, Matt. I think what Matt's saying is just throw the seeds on the ground in the garden now. And let them volunteer themselves next year. Let them overwinter in the garden. The problem is you have to do a heavy, heavy seeding to get that done because your concern is that they start coming up now. For instance, right now I have about, I don't know, it's about five foot tall, uh, five inches tall, uh, about a five inch tall eggplant right now. I've only ever grown eggplant once and For some reason, maybe the seed was in my compost from stuff I harvested or whatever. It just came up now. Well, that plant has no hope of ever producing, no matter how well it does. Because as soon as we get a frost, it's dead. So the problem with planting in the fall and just like basically scatter planting is you're going to lose a lot of plants. If you have tons of seed, it doesn't hurt. Uh, but the other problem is if you live in most of the temperate climates, plants like tomatoes and peppers and stuff like that, you, if you jumpstart them by plant, you know, buying plants from a nursery or starting them indoors or whatever, they're going to be far ahead of anything out of the ground. The stuff that does grow on the ground, though, uh, as long as it's good, you know, uh, open pollinated seed, generally does extremely well because the healthiest survive. So I think there's a case for maybe taking some surplus seed and, and casting it into the garden, and then whatever shows up next year, fine. But here's something else I want to point out. The fact that you're getting more and more volunteers means that you're doing a better and better job. I have, I have volunteers in flower pots, right? The, the better you make your environment, I've got watermelons right now growing in flower pots. I have no idea how the hell it ended up there. I got eggplant growing from, you know, two years ago is the last time I grew an eggplant on purpose. Uh, I've got amaranth, I've got amaranth growing in my lawn. I've got purslane growing in my lawn. I've got, uh, New Zealand spinach crawling out of places. I've got Malabar spinach crawling up the side of my deck. Um, this is a good thing. It's to be embraced and enjoyed, but understand its limits based on your climate. Uh, I don't have a problem with your suggestion. I just don't think you should rely or depend on it. But every time you get a plant from that volunteer tech, you know, type and it does make and it does produce, save the seed from that plant. That is the most highly adapted, climatized Uh, locally adapted seed you will ever get your hands on. Great idea to do that. Let's go ahead and take another question. Okay, next one. For anybody that thinks that um, has not fully gotten on board with the fact that, hey, we could lose what we have yet, that, uh, uh, that anybody's job is not necessarily secure and what have you. Here's the email. I'll read it. Let it speak for itself. comes from Tim. E email title, Jack was right. Hey, Jack, so working as an ER doctor, newly graduated from residency for a big hospital here in the Southwest, I figured my job was about as secure as anybody can be. Never going to run out of sick patients, right? Monday, the bosses called a staff meeting, all the docs in our group having a salary cut of 25%, depending on some nebulous productivity goals and expecting us to work three more shifts a month. So they're cutting their salary by 25%, and they want them to work extra shifts. Among some other changes, none of them good. Fortunately for me, I have been following your advice and keeping a conservative budget. Bought a house that was a lot less than I could quote afford, unquote, and saving money. I'm either going to go part-time, take a new job, or take the month of January off to ski 
maybe do all three. Some of my partners are not as fortunate. Anyway, good advice is good advice. Keep up the good work. See, isn't it great to have options when something like that happens? Um, here's what I think you should do, Tim. I think you should start circulating your resume now. I think you should try to find a better job that's going to make you happier, that's not going to have you work you know, 15% harder for 25% less money. I think you should try to ink a contract to start February 1st. I think you should terminate your employment right before Christmas time. I think you should go see your family for Christmas. I think you should ski your ass off in January and call it an interim mini-retirement. And then I think you should go work this new job and prove that they made the right decision. And I bet you, as a doctor, you do have that option, especially since you have so much time. And I would do all three, just like you said. And I would empower yourself with that, and I would keep living that conservative budget. And if you want to spend a month skiing after you've worked hard enough to become a doctor and do all this and set yourself up with this redundancy, that you take the crap they handed you and you turn it right back around you go spend at least a couple weeks skiing, man. Don't cheat yourself of at least two weeks of this. And if you want to do a month, do a month. That'll probably get it out of your system for a good year or more, and you'll be able to really get back to doing what you're supposed to do as a doctor and helping people. There you go. But, hey, folks, if a doctor can get their salary cut by 25%, Do any of us really think that our jobs are that safe? This is why I say prepare for the individual disaster before the end of the world as we know it. Um, next one. Hi, Jack. Ryan from Wisconsin. Does it hurt to put mulch around fruit trees? My father's neighbor told my dad that he shouldn't put mulch around his trees because it causes mold and funguses which can kill the tree, and my dad has wood mulch around all his fruit trees. We are planting apples, pears, plums, and cherry trees both in our backyards. Thank you for... Thanks to you, uh, Jack. Uh, thanks for all you do, and keep up the good work. Isn't it interesting how people always know these things, yet they don't really have any basis for it? Go to the forest <clears throat> and see how much mulch is on the ground in the forest. If you go to the forest and it's been left alone for years and years and years, you start pulling back leaves, you'll find six to eight inches of leaves, and you'll see them piled up all around the trees, and wherever there's an opening in the forest, you'll see little oak trees and little trees peeking up out of the forest, and there's all kinds of fungus in there, and all those funguses are breaking the leaves down, and everybody's happy, and everything's growing, and no trees are being killed by the evil forest floor fungus, but if we put mulch around our trees in suburbia, all of a sudden our trees will mold themselves to death. It's not going to happen. But most myths have their basis in fact. Here's the issue with that. A tree in suburbia, especially when it's young and you're watering it constantly throughout its first couple years, is on far moist, more, more moist ground than it is when it's in the forest. This is so we can get it to grow faster than it would grow in the forest, send the deep seat, the, the roots out faster, build a drip line faster, do all the things that we want a tree to do in 10 years, we want to get it to do it in 3 to 5 years. We want to get it maturing into production. During that time with the added moisture, there can be some damage and sometimes some loss of trees if there's too much mulch piled against the tree trunk. So what we do is when we put our mulch around the tree, right where the tree meets the ground, we pull back about an inch of mulch so that our mulch looks like a great big giant donut with a tiny hole in the middle so that the mulch isn't piled up against the young tree's trunk and that allows the tree to continue to expand and grow and as the tree does that we keep pulling it back and eventually we'll get the tree up to a point where you know you've got maybe a four inch or five inch diameter or larger tree and at that point the bark is thick enough that you're not going to have like fungus eating away at the tree and here's the thing Most molds and funguses 
don't eat anything that's alive. There's certain funguses that will infect a tree, or infect a plant, or infect a human. But in general, most of what's out there, a fungi, is designed to do what? To decompose the dead or dying. Now that high moisture environment can create a, a imbalance of pH in the wood, and it can create the illusion for funguses and encourage it. A, where it will start to do its job when it's really not supposed to yet. So simply by pulling that mulch back a little bit, I can tell you in orchards, where you know, they have almond orchards and stuff like that, in dry climates where they have to do irrigation and all, these guys are running 6 to 10 inches or more of mulch, doing whatever they can to keep all of that moisture in the ground. So absolutely no, you, you, you should not avoid mulching your trees, but when they're young, you do want to create that kind of donut effect, leave that little bit of gap to keep it from forming too much moisture on that young growing trunk. Um, next one, five places where land is free. Would you like free land? I'm going to tell you five places today that you can get free land. In fact, I'm going to tell you one place you can get land for free uh, to start a business with. Here we go. Uh, this is on... Wallet Pop, and it's by Ann Brendoff. And I'll kind of race through it a little bit, but uh, I'll put a link to it so you can read it. Um, five places where land is free. In the spirit of settling the wild, wild west, some communities are giving away free land lots. What's the catch? You have to agree to build a house or park a mobile home and live in it. For the most part, the places doing this are rural communities without much in the way of work opportunities, but there are definitely some upsides that we can think of worse places to wait out a recession than near a mountain stream in Alaska. Besides, doesn't the whole world work virtually now, and that's just in, or is that just in my hemisphere? So I think, yeah, I think this is the best option for this is people that can work from home. You can live anywhere you want, uh, or you're running your own business that you can run from anywhere in the world. Uh, so some, here's just a couple examples. Here's a sampling of what we found for free. Several small cities in rural Kansas will give you a land lot if you agree to fashion housing of at least 1,000 square feet on it. Mobile homes are welcome and will be sure to wave as yours flies by in the next tornado. Uh, if one lot isn't large enough and you'd like a garden, the city of Marquette, Kansas, would be pleased as punch to just give you a second lot adjacent to the first, also for free, says its website. They are developed lots, by the way. They already have water, sewer, and electricity. So the city of Marquette, Kansas, will give you two lots, one for your garden and one to build a house. you got to figure out how to make a living in Marquette, Kansas, but starting out with a free, you got to build a house, right? But starting now, I, I'm with them on the mobile home thing. Um, I have a mobile home. Question on that coming up uh, in, in today's uh, show. But uh, it's up on a mountain where the tornado possibilities are very, very low. Mobile home on the plane scares the hell out of me. Uh, so I'd look for something different. Atwood, Kansas, population 2600, is also offering free land to anyone willing to move their family to their community and build a new home on one of these lots. If 2600 people sounds too rural for you, they're quick to point out there's another 45,000 people and probably even more cattle can be found within an hour's drive. Rush hour traffic isn't an issue. Ellswood, Nebraska, just 761 residents, bills itself as a great place to find a home. They aren't giving away much in terms of land, but it's worth a look if you want to live in the county seat. May Marn, Iowa is giving away what appears to be attractive looking lots with well established trees. Either that or somebody went a little crazy with Photoshop. The town is settled in 1875 and only has 149 residents, down from the original 617. The city is, the city of Mame's website features winners of the apple pie baking contest as well as a call for community prayer and a resident, for a resident deployed to Iraq 
and the news that someone's nephew from Australia was just visiting. The new, the, you New Yorkers are just lining up, aren't you? Number five, least you think businesses are being left out of the free land loop. Some communities aren't waiting for federal stimulus money to create jobs. They're doing it on their own. Muskegon, Michigan is giving away free land for companies that create new industrial jobs. You get five acres for 25 jobs. Create 100 jobs and get 30 acres. The sites they are giving away have full utilities and easy access to highways, a deep water port, the railroads, and the Muskegon County Airport. If the pot isn't sweet enough for you, the city will also throw in free season tickets to the Lumberjacks hockey team or a free boat slip at the Harbor Town Marina and the slips the city now owns after prior slip owners didn't pay their property taxes. Wow. And in coastal Camden, Maine, the city is offering free three-and-a-half-acre lot to any business that will help generate tourism. They throw in no corporate income tax or sales tax for the first few years and will even pay your insurance premiums. Just bring some jobs with you. Isn't that awesome, really? I mean, people would say, look how bad the economy is. People are giving away land to get people. Do you know how we settled the West? We gave away land. I think this is awesome. And I think, you know, is there potential in the first one in Kansas? Kansas has got some pretty fertile land. You get two lots. Is that an urban farm waiting to happen for somebody that's got enough money to make it through the first couple years and fund the construction of a home and things like that? Or a, a couple where one person can work and the other person can, you know, basically set that up? I don't know, man. I don't want to live in Kansas personally, but I can think of worse places to live. And uh, free land, that's something pretty cool. So uh, anyway, check this article out. And if you see anything else like this, folks, send them to me. I'm interested in this one. Um Last one comes from Adam. Adam says, my wife and I are looking to purchase our first home. Because our income, we will probably end up buying a mobile home. I don't like mobile homes because they don't seem very sturdy. I'm concerned with how long they will last. Uh, will they still be standing or have any value when they're paid off? Are my concerns about mobile homes valid? Do you know about any concerns uh, that mobile homes have? What are the advantages, disadvantages of mobile homes? Would it be better for us to hold off on buying a home until we can site-build a home? Or a mobile home is a stepping stone to a site-built home. Here's the thing about mobile homes. Number one, they're a hell of a lot better today than they were 20 years ago. A hell of a lot better. Uh, most new mobile homes today, if you're about to buy a new one, and I would recommend that, or a really in good shape, recently built uh, one that's already set up, those are your two best options. Have two-by-sixes in the walls. They're well insulated. Their interiors look a lot more like a typical home. There are some dis here's the big disadvantages. One, if you live anywhere where tornadoes are highly likely, you better have a tornado shelter on the property or don't do a mobile home. Your insurance is going to be higher because of that. If you a mobile home hit with a moderate tornado that might remove some shingles and stuff like that from uh from a typical site built house completely could get torn apart. Anything else, though, they're as sturdy as anything needs to be so that you can live in it. They're not very energy efficient. They're better than they used to be. A big problem with mobile homes is the floor and that space underneath it. A lot of the heat uh, gets drawn out of it in the winter, so it takes more energy to heat them. Um, there's always little problems with them. We Again, we have one in Arkansas. Long term, we'd like to replace it. I don't have any problem with anybody buying one, but there's a couple things you have to understand. One, it's going to be harder to get financing, especially now. You'll probably have to go with a bigger down payment. Um, two, the insurance is going to be more expensive. Three, the energy efficiency. Those are the big ones. And four, the weakness to the weather. If you can mitigate those, uh, you might be able to come out way ahead with it. There's no way I would have a, a, a sub $500 house payment in Arkansas with a site-built home. It just isn't in the cards. 
And it allowed us to get a piece of property up there and have a bug out location and, and, and get our lives in the situation we wanted before we moved. Then it gives us a place to live and make our own and decide what we want to do with it long term. So I don't have a problem with it as a stepping stone. Mobile homes will depreciate. There's no doubt about that. But there's no guarantee that every time you buy a site-built home, it goes up in value either. Um, mobile homes might boom in the next 10 years. As people realize, if I'd like 2,000 square feet again, based on what I can afford under my new economy, that's how I'm going to get it. And there's a lot of people that say, I, won't, I don't want a mobile phone home because of a stigma. And then they go and they look at what $150,000 buys, and they go look at an 1,100 square foot house on a, on a, you know, a tenth or a twentieth of an acre in the middle of suburbia. And then they go and they say, well, what does $100,000 buy if I go with a mobile home? And they go look at a one or two or three acre lot with an 1,800 to 2,200 square foot home. And all of a sudden, the stigma just doesn't seem as important anymore. Especially, again, with the newer homes. Uh, some of the best ones built out there are by a company called Solitaire. They're not one of the biggest companies, but they probably build the best, uh, nicest, best well-finished mobile homes out there. Again, not a problem, but those are your gotchas. And with that, I think I'll go ahead and wrap up today. Hopefully this was a, a different uh, email in your stuff show. I got a lot of email backlog. Maybe I'll do an extra one today. Uh, maybe an extra one this week, actually. I know everybody's into these shows, but hey, I mean, I got to keep this show fresh and new for you. On that, I got a great one coming tomorrow. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about the money supply. We're going to talk more about this little copper project that we're doing. And uh, I'm going to reveal to you some of the material we're putting together for this special website. And I'm going to tell you how your currency works tomorrow. And I think you will be absolutely shocked, even if you think you know. Uh, about currency and gold and honest money and fiat currency and everything. I think tomorrow, if no matter how much you think you know about money, I'm going to shock you about how deep the problem is, how impossible the problem is to solve unless we reclaim it, the constitutionality for reclaiming it, not the made-up stuff, uh, why a gold standard may not be may not be the solution at all, especially a 100% gold standard, how much we leave out if we do that. I'm going to change the way you think about money And not about the way you personally manage it, but about money itself, about currency, how it circulates, what our role is, and how it has gone from being the tool of the people to the prison of the people. Tune in tomorrow for that. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. I'm
Someday we'll realize our children just can't pay. Nobody up there cares. They're living for today. Yeah.